The programme which follows is brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. Again, you are tuned to Ice Top in Resonance 104.4 FM with me, Simon Tishko. And on today's Ice Top we're kind of going sonic soundscape type thing. Um, we're going to be jamming around some rather interesting artists' sounds and spoken word. But in the meantime, let me remind you that coming up next week, at the end of next week, um, it's the Beaconsfield Gallery in Lambeth. It's their New Dawn party. Anyway, on the 25th of June, Beaconsfield Gallery are having their 20th anniversary celebration. And there's going to be performers from 6 o'clock with weird, unusual, bespoke and very fine art performances. At the gallery, from 6 o'clock until midnight, um, we've got Dave Ball from Sarcel and Dave Chambers, I know where he's from. We've got Shiva Fashareki and Jack Jeffs, Russell Haswell, Lucky PDF, Boo Saville, Tony White and myself. And if things work out and I can actually work out an engineering way of doing it, I'm going to be playing a piano through a Roland 201 Space Echo by swinging it against the gallery. Kind of thinking about CERN and the Super Collider and things like that, plus guests, Ello Massing and the most glorious flute player is going to be coming along as well. So there'll be lots of echo, lots of things, and a really interesting night. Um, it's a free event, uh, but you need to book tickets through Eventbrite. So if you go to the Beaconsfield website, which is Beaconsfield Gallery, Google, did a and you can find it. Also, don't forget to drop me a line. I've got a short survey on my website, being www.theculture.net slash contact, where you can also sign up to follow us on Twitter, at Simon Tishko. Blah, 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 blah. So today on Isotopica, what we got, that was the news feed, and now we're going to be basing today around some performances by Simeon Ten Holt. Um, who was a rather fabulous Dutch contemporary classical composer and a minimalist, um, born in 1923 and I believe died about three years ago. Um, he's very interesting because his music was very interested in the relationship between music, visual art and in music's relationship with mathematics, which spins backwards to last week's episode and the notion of the algorithm and creativity. Um, Another artist who will be behind rather than in the front of today's Sonic Soundscape is Eliane Radig, who I've only just discovered, a really fascinating French electronic music composer who was born in 1932. 
she began working in the 1950s and her first composition were presented in the 1960s I believe and up until around 2000 her work was almost exclusively created on the ARP2500 modular synthesis synthesizer system uh, and tape machines but now she's doing something completely different but we're going back to some early stuff that was uh, first written in the 1970s I believe um, we've also got some vocal stuff from the super loopy and I always go back to them but the Ethereum Society right opposite where I live is actually their new temple and they've got the most glorious sign outside which basically claims in no uncertain terms that they're working with gods from outer space they are the original flying souls of people forget area 51 it's actually area southwest 6 5th now that's my um That's my postcode. And we've got Groovy Film as well, which makes some sounds called Down Something, Down Something. I've got it listed here. That would be Down Terrace, which is the 2009 film by Ben Wheatley. A really nice, independent, low-budget English, very dark comedy. And um, I've selected a monologue from there which kind of weaves in and out today so there you go it's a sound piece it's a strap back your listening ears and kind of see where it takes you episode of isotopica i do hope you enjoy details once again on the website www.theculture.net you can't forget it you're tuned to resonance 104.4 fm this is me simon tishko this is isotopica let's listen I mean, I was a smoker. I mean, I was a, I was an artist, a poet, a head. I was a head, you know. Um, and I said I would do it. I started doing it, and uh, I could have as much gear as I wanted, which was all I was interested in. The funny thing was, this is what I noticed first of all when I got into it, was everybody else was into making money, except me. I mean, me and Timothy Leary, you know, I believed that it, this was a revolution of consciousness and there was going to be an evolution taking place and we were going to find out all these discoveries about the brain and the future and how to be high and stay high and how to be magical, how to live in the world in this sort of new way. But all these other characters basically were into bread. They made money. And I ended up just becoming just another criminal like them because of force majeure, because of Maggie and then you and the rest of it. I had to do something, you know? Studied the Tibetan Book of the Dead. I learned how to control my consciousness when I got into acid. I knew how to sort of... I did the full lotus and you can get into that little pyramid shape. And then it all starts to unfold, you know? and curl up and close out the top of your head and there you are man and you're like hey i'm god i'm all men i can be every man i'm no better no worse and certainly no worse than anyone else in the world i am man i am adam cad man three things that's what i found at the top level you know it's a triangle it's goodness truth and beauty and if things 
aren't good, they're not true, and they're not beautiful. If it's good, it's also true and beautiful. And that was the aim, to get that little triangle in your forehead so you could see through that lens of goodness, truth and beauty and see the goodness and see the truth and see the beauty. I've just become some sort of, you know, grim recluse living in my diamond cave. There were good drugs to start with and then the freak out of the laws and the paranoia began and everybody splintered off and went into their rooms and closed their curtains and the communities were all closed off from one another so nobody knew what anybody else was doing, everyone else was just paranoid. I mean, I was a smoker. I mean, I was, a, I was an artist, a poet. The head. I was a head, you know. Um, and I said I would do it. I started doing it. And uh, I could have as much gear as I wanted, which was all I was interested in. The funny thing was, this is what I noticed first of all when I got into it, was everybody else was into making money, except me. I mean, me and Timothy Leary, you know, I believed that it, this was a revolution of consciousness and there was going to be an evolution taking place and we were going to find out all these discoveries about the brain and the future and how to be high and stay high and how to be magical, how to live in the world in this sort of new way. But all these other characters basically were into bread. They made money. And I ended up just becoming just another criminal like them because of force majeure, because of Maggie and then you and the rest of it. I had to do something, you know? Studied the Tibetan Book of the Dead. I learned how to control my consciousness when I got into acid. I knew how to sort of... I did the full lotus, and you can get into that little pyramid shape. And then it all starts to unfold, you know, and curl up and it goes out the top of your head and there you are, man, and you're like, hey, I'm God. I'm all men. I can be every man. I'm no better, no worse, and certainly no worse than anyone else in the world. I am man. I am Adam, Cad man. Three things. That's what I found at the top level. You know, it's a triangle. It's goodness, truth, and beauty. And if things aren't good, they're not true, and they're not beautiful. If it's good, it's also true and beautiful. And that was the aim, to get that little triangle in your forehead so you could see through that lens of goodness, truth and beauty and see the goodness and see the truth and see the beauty. I've just become some sort of, you know, grim recluse living in my diamond cave. There were good drugs to start with and then the freak out of the laws and the paranoia began and everybody splintered off and went into their rooms and closed their curtains and the communities were all closed off from one another so nobody knew what anybody else was doing, everyone else was just paranoid.
John Waters, and I'm supposed to announce there is no smoking in this theater, which I think is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard of in my life. How can anyone sit through a length of a film, especially a European film, and not have a cigarette? But don't you wish you had one right now? Mm, 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 mm. And I'm telling you that smoke anyway, it gives ushers jobs, and if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So once again, no smoking in this theater. been listening to a recording of the voice of Mr. King, who is the chairman of the Ethereum Society. The recording was made while Mr. King 
was in a trance state and was transmitting, he believes, the intelligence of a person called Mars Sector 6. Mr. King is going to discuss his views, his experiences, and give us some of what he regards as the evidence in support of them this evening. We have also with us in the studio two scientific colleagues of mine, both to listen to and then discuss this evidence together. The first is Dr. Dewhurst, who is an astronomer from the Cambridge Observatories, and the second is a psychiatric colleague who, under the present regulations, constantly criticized of our profession, will, like myself, be anonymous. He is a psychiatrist with a special training in Jungian psychology. Now, Mr. King is in the studio with us to discuss at first hand both his work in trance, his knowledge and belief about the matters dealing with space and the people inhabited. Mr. King, how long has the Ethereus Society been in existence? Uh, three years now. You're its founder chairman? That's correct, yes. Before you founded the Ethereus <coughs> Society, uh, what was your occupation? I was a taxi driver. I see. How old are you now? <coughs> uh, Forty. So you found it when you were 37? Uh, yes, that's right. Um, you see, I had uh, quite an amazing experience uh, one Saturday morning while I was washing up some dishes. I had a voice, uh, quite defin definitely a voice out of this world, say to me, prepare yourself, you are to become the voice of interplanetary parliament. Soon after this, I had a physical visitation from a member of uh, the cosmic hierarchy, if you like, who gave me certain instructions. Um, I obeyed these instructions to the letter, and later on, um, I found I could contact intelligences from other planets. This visitation that you described, what happened? Well, it was quite physical. Uh, I was sat in a room, um, and a man walked through a locked door uh, across the, the uh, carpet on the floor and he was quite physical. When he crossed the boards they creaked and he sat down opposite to me and began to talk to me. I see. He had a, a, a body and a face just like anybody else? Just. He was as physical as you are now. Where did he in fact come from? Um, <clears throat> he, he is a man who is living uh, in northern India at the moment but he came from another planet, I believe it was Venus. Now, when he came into your room through the locked door with this ordinary physical body, did he resemble any other human inhabitant of this planet? Or? Yes, he, he would have been taken for, um, for uh, uh, an Indian, I think. I see. And this was the body which he has when he's on Venus as well? No, this, is a, this was a special body he used when he was on this Earth. What happens to it when he's not here? Um, I think uh, he is capable of breaking up the atomic structure and cellular structure and reforming another body when he goes back to Venus again. Now, um, he gave you some instructions which you followed. Could you describe them? Uh, I'm sorry, I couldn't. I see. But as a result of those, you became uh, a channel for the transmission of messages from cosmic intelligence. Yes, that's right. You have a title which you've been given in this respect. Yes, uh, the space people refer to me as mental channel number one. 
And they send their messages directly through you as a rule? Uh, they do, yes. I think I've received more messages from the space people than any other person on Earth at the moment. Yes. It's quite fitting under those circumstances that you should have founded the society. You did this for what purpose? Uh, well, I wanted to make known this great truth that uh, I was receiving. I wanted all the world to know about it. So I founded the Aetherius Society so that this could be brought about. Now, in addition to the messages which you receive in a trance state, do you receive visitors from outer space in person? I have met uh, people from outer space. You've met people from Saturn? I've met people from Saturn, Mars and Venus, yes. Tell me what someone from Saturn looks like. <clears throat> well, the particular person I met was a man. Uh, he was average height, uh, dark hair, uh, fairly broadish. Um, he had no pupils to the eyes, um, very, very large hands, but very, very small feet. Now this body that you describe, and this person, um, does he have a physical existence uh, only when he's on Earth, or are the physical existences on Saturn? No, <coughs> he uh, lives in a physical body on Saturn, but it's uh, a little bit different than the one I've described to you. I see. When he's on the Earth, he breathes the air like we do? Yes, and, and he eats the same as you do. And, I mean, could he swim and see, and things like that? Yes, except he wouldn't eat meat. He wouldn't eat meat? No. But when he's on Saturn, he has a physical body, not quite the same. Yes, quite so. The same thing applies to people from Venus. Uh, to people from Venus and Mars <coughs> and all the other planets. Now, when they come to, to visit you, when they come to visit the Earth, how do they get here? They uh, come to Earth in the vehicles that we refer to as flying saucers. You've seen one of these, haven't you? Oh, I've seen a couple of hundred, I suppose. Close up? <coughs> quite close, yes. What do they look like? <clears throat> well, they look rather like um, two saucers put together uh, with uh, a dome on the top and they have portholes. And when you see them at night, they glow a golden color. What are they made of? <clears throat> a metal which is maybe described, I think, as organic metal. What does organic metal mean? I'm sorry. <clears throat> well, it has um, a living cellular structure um, rather as a human has a living cellular structure that constitutes his body. Is it a metal comparable to those we know on Earth? No, no. Is it a metal which can be detected in any way in the spectrum of any of the planets from which it comes? Mm. Um, <clears throat> it may be, yes, possibly um, uh, there may be very, very great heat um, needed in the beginning to fuse more than one metal together to, to make this metal which they eventually settle on for the source. Have you ever travelled in one of these um, vehicles? Not in a physical body, but um, I, I'd like to um, point out that my mother has travelled in one of these vehicles in a physical body and um, she was... Um, she went along to, to a meeting that was arranged and um, she had to walk through mud in a field and uh, she got her shoes covered with mud. She walked up some steps and into a flying saucer. Now, she's made a recording of her experience which you played to me and from which we've selected an excerpt. Uh, I'd like to, to tell 
the viewers for a moment, if I may, at the point at which we've taken this excerpt, because they'll know then what they're listening to. This is a long recording, and we've only time for a very short portion of it. In it, one can hear Mrs. King, that's Mr. King's mother, describing the whole of her trip in the flying saucer. She describes how she enters it, how she meets the crew, how it takes off, how she flies inside this vehicle, and finds herself somewhere in space. She doesn't know where. The point at which we're going to play the recording is the point at which she is describing looking at some of the instruments inside the saucer and what she sees when it is in flight and when she's inside it. Could we have the recording? Certainly. And in a few moments, one of the screens lighted up. I thought, oh, well, now I've got something to look at. And it was the strangest, most fantastic thing you've ever seen. Behind this screen seemed to be a round world moving slowly. It was going from west to east, but from east to west was a light working along this thing, this screen. I could see it was round because I could see the contour of it. Oh, I said, that's wonderful. I said, it's, it's lovely. I said, what is that? He said, that is your earth. Oh, I said, isn't it wonderful? I said, and what is that light? He said, that is our being. We are flying over your earth. Thank you very much. Now, you've heard your mother's first-hand account of this, apart from this recording. Oh, I have indeed, yeah. Tell me quite frankly, Mr. King, allowing for the fact that she's your mother and she knows your interest in these matters, do you think she's been led away to any extent by her enthusiasm, or do you think this actually has happened to her? This actually did happen to my mother. You're, you're quite sure about it. Yes, I'll stake my life on it. Now, for one moment, there's another aspect of this that I'd like to ask you about. Apart from the scientific data which have interested you and which you have uh, described briefly to us, the nature of the people, the way they live, uh, the fact that they can travel in spaceships, um, incidentally, how long does it take them to get, for instance, from Saturn <coughs> to the Earth? Um, I'm not sure, but from Venus to the Earth, if they're really pushed for time, yes. they can do the journey in uh, 2.5 seconds. 2.5 seconds from Venus to the Earth. Yeah. You don't know how long it takes them from Saturn? I'm not sure, no. No. Well, now, in addition to the, the interest in this extraordinary information, they have messages that they feel must be transmitted through you. What are these messages about? <coughs> well, they uh, stress the dangers of atomic experimentation and also uh, turn back to what they uh, call the laws which are God, if we are to um, survive on this earth. What kind of laws are they actually postulated? Mm, well, the, the laws as laid down by Jesus and Buddha, Krishna, and other great teachers who came to the earth uh, to, to lead us throughout the ages. So that their message has a strong uh, religious content 
of a kind similar to that contained in the various religious teachings of the world. Oh yes, yes, definitely. Now, do they make any original statements other than those which are already to be found <coughs> in the established religions of the world? Oh yes, they, they do say, um, tell us about um, certain dangers. For instance, they, they spoke about some time ago the large crack in the, just beneath the surface of the earth, which stretches for several uh, hundred miles from the middle of Siberia right the way down through the center of Australia. And they say that if we opened up this fault line uh, in the earth's surface, uh, we are liable to have uh, tilt on the axis of the earth as a result of this. How might we open up this fault line? Um, through atomic experimentation uh, uh, and so on. And presumably if the fault line goes from Siberia to the middle of Australia, most of the Pacific Ocean would disappear into the fault. Yes, and then you'd get the tremendous reaction between hundreds of millions of gallons of water and the, the uh, shall we say, gases under pressure which, you, which are held in the centre of the earth. Now, when you get visitations, physical visitations, you see the people and they talk to you in an ordinary voice in an ordinary way. Oh yes, the, the voice isn't quite ordinary though. It has a certain peculiar quality which I can best describe as a quality of running water. Now, when the messages come to you as your, in your capacity that you've described as mental channel number one, you go into trance and the voice speaks through you, is that right? Yes, the intelligence uh, uh, speaks through me. In other words, I gain a telepathic rapport with the uh, intelligence from another planet and he conveys his message to me. Using your vocal cords? Yes, oh yes. Could you do that this evening? Um, I think I could, yes. Before I ask you to do it, there is one other question which I'd like to ask you, which I hope you will accept as completely sincere, but to be answered with equal sincerity. Many people are clearly going to draw the conclusion that you are sincerely but absolutely deluded in all you say, that this isn't true, that you believe it, and it is a shared delusion. What is your own answer to that? How do you know that this is not, in fact, a projection of your own imagination? Because I've met these people, my mother has met physically uh, one of the people who has been uh, uh, speaking through me for a number of years, and he told my mother uh, this fact that um, he, he has been speaking uh, virtually uh, through me. Now who is going to speak through you this evening if you can get in touch? Uh, 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 intelligence from the planet Venus, uh, who we call Theris. Right. Will you now try to go uh, into a transport? I will try. Yes. <clears throat> Mr. King has explained to me that in fact it may take him 30 seconds even perhaps as much as a minute to get into a trance. And during this time, he has suggested that we should be entirely silent. And so we will be. We will wait for the voice if it comes through Mr. King.
Good evening. Good evening. My dear friend. Your name is? I am known as Isiris. Where do you come from? The planet Venus. Where are you speaking from now? I am sorry, my dear friend. I cannot answer that question for you. I had wondered simply whether you were in a vehicle of some kind, a spaceship described by Mr. King when he was talking to me, or whether you were in your normal abode. But you can't tell me that? Uh, no. You do travel normally in what Mr. King has described as flying saucers when you move about space, do you? Yes, that is quite correct. We have indeed been visiting this earth of yours for some 18 million of your earth years. And when you come here, what is your purpose in coming? At the moment, Earth, as you call it, faces a certain situation. The situation can be described as rather a dangerous one. You are liable to upset the balance of your Earth through number one, atomic experimentation, and number two, your deviation from the spiritual laws. And your visits are designed to warn us against this? Yes. Can anybody see flying saucers when they arrive? Oh yes. The vehicles that you call flying saucers are quite physical. If you're fired a 16-inch shell at the hull of a flying saucer, it would burst when it came into contact with the force screen or protective barrier around the vessel. Is there one single message that you would like to give us this evening? I'm afraid it must be brief, you'll understand that. Yes. I would like to say this. If you are a Christian, then live the laws as laid down by Jesus. If you are a Buddhist, live the laws as laid down by Buddha. <clears throat> if you are a Hindu, then be the best Hindu. This procedure is the one true way for men of earth to save themselves from their lower aspects. Thank you, Etherius, very much indeed. Good night. Good night. Dr. Dewhurst, 
You heard both what Mr. King has to say, the information that he has produced, the recording that his mother made, <coughs> the voice that he believes is that of Etherius taking over his vocal cords. From the point of view of our discussion, there are clearly two aspects to this. There is the theosophical or religious aspect, uh, the moral teachings, which may be largely borrowed from religions as we know them, and there is the scientific material or the scientific claims, the rate of travel of the spaceship, the construction of the spaceship and so on. I imagine that it is with the latter that you care to deal. Um, uh, yes, I think I should make this clear um, right from the start. Uh, as you said, that there are two aspects to uh, what uh, Mr. King has told us, what um, the voice of the Ethereus has told us. Uh, one uh, brings us messages which are the messages which have been brought from time to time by the world's religious leaders uh, to us. And clearly about these, I've no more authority to speak than any others of us here or indeed uh, anyone else. Now, he did mention that people lived on Saturn with physical bodies. Now, this is the other point that I think we have to make clear before we can proceed usefully uh, in this discussion. Uh, it's this, uh, that uh, as scientists, we deal with the material world. We know that material um, behaves in certain ways, it obeys certain laws, and with our telescopes, we can look uh, far out into space, we can see distant galaxies, and we find that the material in these galaxies, there are the same kinds of uh, elements present, the same atoms, they're behaving uh, in precisely the same way as they behave in our laboratories on the surface of the Earth. Now, within uh, these limits, I can tell you what, as astronomers, we know about surface conditions on Saturn and Mars and Venus. Tell us that in um, If uh, we are to think uh, of um, beings at all like ourselves uh, on the surface of Saturn, then quite frankly this is impossible. Yes. Um, we, we don't claim, as astronomers, to uh, know all the answers. Uh, indeed, we're, I think, perhaps more aware and many people are of how little we really know about what the nature of the material world. What we, what we do know is that the surface temperature on Saturn is something like 150 degrees, degrees centigrade uh, below uh, freezing point. Um, now already vital processes are beginning to slow down. For example, if you deep freeze food to about minus 10 degrees centigrade, uh, then you um, prevent metabolic processes going on in um, quite low forms of life, microbes and so on. Yes. And we find, find it almost impossible to believe that any high form of living matter could exist at this temperature. Uh, in, in addition, uh, all the high forms of life that we know on the surface of the Earth, uh, mammals and so on, uh, uh, breathe uh, or rely on uh, oxygen for their existence. It's completely lacking in Saturn. Uh, the atmosphere is probably made uh, very largely of hydrogen uh, and certainly uh, there's uh, a large quantity of methane um, fire damp poisonous gas but uh, no oxygen containing atoms and molecules that we know the pressure of the gases as you approach the, the surface of the planet what are they like uh, well of course we can't give a certain answer to this because uh, we can't see down to any solid surface below the cloud levels in saturn even if there is a solid surface um, but we suppose that as the pressure uh, increases as you go inwards, uh, that the gases will begin to solidify and you'll pass um, from uh, a gaseous atmosphere uh, down to perhaps um, solid hydrogen 
uh, at the bottom, we'll pass through an intermediate phase where there is nothing that we know of as uh, a simple surface between gas and solid at all. So that in, in summary, the temperature's at least 15 times lower there than that of a deep freeze. There's no oxygen of any kind, only ammonia, and most of the gases are a sort of liquid slush as they near whatever might be the surface. This, this is the sort of picture that we have accepted. So it's impossible for you to conceive of life? Quite impossible. Now, the, the only other point I'd like you to answer is this question of both the construction and the speed of flying saucers. We are told that they're made of an organic metal. We are told that they can travel from Venus to the Earth in 2.5 seconds. Well, here again, it seems to me that Mr. King and I are not speaking the same language. If the flying saucers, whatever these vehicles um, um, are, um, are made of material substance, then I can only speak of them if they're made of substances that are known to us as scientists. Uh, this phrase that Mr. King uh, uses of, of organic metals is, is completely meaningless, but if it is a material substance, then it, it is quite impossible, uh, within the limits of our knowledge, that he could possibly come from Venus to the Earth uh, in, I think it was two and a half seconds, uh, Mr. King said. This is a velocity much greater than the velocity of light. And uh, we've had very considerable success in explaining the behavior of the material universe on the assumption that this can't happen. But no, the, the velocity of light is the limiting speed of the universe? Yes. Yes. Thank you. I wish we could go into this further, but I know we're running over time, and I think it's worth I running see. over a bit just to get these things clear. Now, Tony, you know as well as I do that we don't have to take this material that Mr. King has said purely at its face value. Supposing that the refutation on the scientific aspect that has been given by our colleague is absolute, and that uh, Mr. King is sincerely misguided or deluded about the nature of the scientific aspects of his claims, there is something about the symbolic aspects of them which perhaps you could comment on. Yes, I think certainly, because you've got to assume if flying saucers have no real physical existence, and the people that he's talking about also have no real physical existence, you've got to assume that they're fantasies. That is, that they are things which originate within the mind itself, that he is imagining or conjuring up these creatures uh, and that they are attributed to the sky, to outer space, uh, and this is indeed a familiar psychological mechanism which we know as projection. Uh, it is the basis of the tests such as the Rorschach test where people look at ink blots. Now, there isn't anything in an ink blot, uh, and therefore it's of interest psychologically because anything you see in an ink blot must come out of you, out of your own mind. As indeed it does. And in the same way, of course, the sky is a very suitable place in which to see things. Um, you'll remember um, Hamlet and Polonius and how Hamlet points out a cloud to Polonius and says it's backed like a weasel or it's shaped like a whale yes. and so on. So that the sky is a particularly suitable place to uh, receive projections from within the mind itself. You, you can see anything in the sky if you look hard enough. Uh, and that's the first point that I want to make. Uh, the second is, of course, that there is evidence of a widespread tendency in human beings to see things in the sky. Uh, Jung, in his recent book, Professor Jung of Zurich, uh, in his recent book on flying sources, gives examples and indeed pictures of things seen in the sky, not unlike flying sources, in the 16th century in Baal and Nuremberg and other places. People have been seeing things like this and claiming to see them throughout history. 
I'd like you, we've got time for one more observation. I'd like you to give your view and Jung's about why people are seeing flying saucers now. Well, he regards us as being in a state of, the world as being in a state of being divided into two armed camps, as it were. It's natural that we should all be suffering anxiety. We all live under the threat of destruction. What is more natural than that people should look up to the sky, as they always have done, looking for hope of some kind, looking for a symbolic solution. And they see a saucer, they see a circular shape, they see something which has always been of the nature of a peaceful, reconciling, hopeful completion. The circle is the only perfect figure. It, it stands and this for this. goes indeed with the advice that uh, Mr. Has, King believes he gets given. Exactly. It, it's, a, it's a phenomenon which is repeated throughout history and many examples can be given away. We would have liked to have discussed this longer. We are limited strictly now by time. I think that perhaps there is one important point about this that we need to take away with us. Mr. King's claims scientifically cannot be accepted by an astronomer who has told us that astronomers cannot fit his claims in with the facts of the universe as they know, nor have they ever seen, despite their telescopes and their interest are flying saucer in the sky. They've been seen by people who are not astronomers, like Mr. King. You've heard also that the kind of advice, the kind of claims and the kind of messages that are transmitted fall in with the kind of hopes and fears that divide mankind. It would be easy, foolish I think, to deride Mr. King, who if nothing else is absolutely sincere. Because what Mr. King is really doing, perhaps, through what may well be total delusion, is nevertheless uttering in one way, in a symbolic form, the cry of anxiety that divides our world, that our scientific interest has outrun our wisdom and our humanity in some respects, and we're afraid that it may outrun our existence. We therefore may not agree with what Mr. King claims or says. We may think that he is sincere, but deluded. But we shall delude ourselves if we think that there is no significance in these fears and their expression in this form. Good night.
mean, I was a smoker. I mean, I was a, I was an artist, a poet. The head. I was a head, you know. Um, and I said I would do it. I started doing it, and uh, I could have as much gear as I wanted, which was all I was interested in. The funny thing was, this is what I noticed first of all when I got into it, was everybody else was into making money, except me. I mean, me and Timothy Leary, you know, I believed that it, this was a revolution of consciousness and there was going to be an evolution taking place and we were going to find out all these discoveries about the brain and the future and how to be high and stay high and how to be magical, how to live in the world in this sort of new way. But all these other characters basically were into bread. They made money. And I ended up just becoming just another criminal like them because of force majeure, because of Maggie and then you and the rest of it. I had to do something, you know? Study the Tibetan Book of the Dead. I learned how to control my consciousness when I got into acid. I knew how to sort of... I did the full lotus, and you can get into that little pyramid shape. And then it all starts to unfold, you know, and curl up and it goes out the top of your head and there you are, man, and you're like, hey, I'm God. I'm all men. I can be every man. I'm no better, no worse, and certainly no worse than anyone else in the world. I am man. I am Adam, Cad man. Three things. That's what I found at the top level. You know, it's a triangle. It's goodness, truth, and beauty. And if things aren't good, they're not true, and they're not beautiful. If it's good, it's also true and beautiful. And that was the aim, to get that little triangle in your forehead so you could see through that lens of goodness, truth, and beauty and see the goodness and see the truth and see the beauty. I've just become some sort of, you know, grim recluse living in my diamond cave. There were good drugs to start with, and then the freak out of the laws and the paranoia began and everybody splintered off and went into their rooms and closed their curtains and the communities were all closed off from one another so nobody knew what anybody else was doing, everybody else was just paranoid. You're only as good as the people you're with. Topica here in Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm really getting on with a lot of work at the moment. Maybe that's the answer to the 
post-Thatcher generational neoliberal dystopia. And remember everyone, there's a great big austerity march this weekend, details of which can be found through the internet. Um, how do you feel about protest march these days do we go out there is there any point facial recognition does it matter do we blow things up do we scream in the street do we fall over and cry will it make any difference all the evidence suggests not but not doing anything is not an option either so maybe i'll make some sound recordings at the protest on saturday who knows let's see what happens on next week's isotopica but i shall at the same time be talking with old friend and compadre dudley sutton about his role in the rather glorious art angel production um in archway at the moment of lou kemp's have your circumstance changed which i believe is described as a triptych of duets between aging men and a growing boy which takes place in theater sets positioned in the window of a former furniture shop in archway that is so art angel that is absolutely sensational i'm going to be doing some reports from there i've got a ticket by Dudley, I'm going along to see it on Wednesday night. Details of that, which I believe it goes on towards the end of this month, are available on the Art Angel website. So just Google Art Angel or look on my site, www.theculture.net. Press the buttons for radio and there should be links and all sorts of connections to the artists who have been twisted, turned and mixed into today's episode of Isotopica. Once again, this is me, this is Simon Tishko, this is Resonance 104.4 FM. I really don't advise you to unlock that dial. Stay with us for another seven days and I'll be back here on the same spot at the same time in the same place, Resonance 104.4 FM. Me, Simon Tishko, signing off. Thanks so much for listening. You've been a really lovely audience. Bye. This programme was brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. Visit our website at resonancefm.com to hear our vast range of original 24-7 broadcasts. Resonance is a not-for-profit broadcast platform that relies on public support. If you like what you've heard, make a secure donation at resonancefm.com.